Bird's Eye View is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. BaltimoreSportsReport.com. Welcome to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and basis opinion. Today is January 18th, 2016. Happy Martin Luther King Day to everyone out there. And this is episode 149. I'm here with my co-host Jake English. Uh, you can find us over at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com since this is the Bird's Eye View podcast. Check us also out on BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You can also check us out with uh, various other baseball podcasts on BaseballTalkRadio.com. Uh, follow us on third-party platforms such as Stitcher, Miro. Um, you can also follow us on iTunes. And if you go to any of those platforms, please give us a rating. It helps keep the users finding us during the off-season when pretty much just nothing is going on. Although the show may be a little different than the past few months, so thank goodness for that. Check us out on social media at facebook.com slash BEVcast and on Twitter at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L. And with that, we're going to start our weeks like we always do with the drink of the week. Jake, what are you drinking tonight? Scott, this week I'm going a little medicinal um, in the fact that, uh, you know, I've got some, got some pain I'm trying to work out. So uh, you turned me on to this, actually. You were uh, quick on the draw to let me know that what I may need to have involved is the healing power of Juniper. Uh, so I am going with a, a gin and tonic uh, light on the lime tonight, which is usually uh, not my not my forte. I'm letting the the juniper soak in. And uh, for those uh, that don't hear what's kind of going on, you might notice that the audio is a little distorted this week. Uh, Jake and I are in different provinces, basically, because I am sick at home, um, and due to this. The alcohol is not on the menu this week. Unfortunately, I'm going with some tea with honey. Yes, it's a very disappointing drink of the week, everybody. So we're gonna tr- we'll try to make up for it basically, uh, and uh, you know show our you know irrational thoughts without the use of alcoholic beverages. So it's gonna be a tough podcast for everybody listening this week. Um, you know what's also been tough has been you know getting good content in 140 characters or less. Let's go and take a look at that content and this week on the Twitters. Jake, you want to start us off this week? This week on the Twitters, our first Twitter uh, uh, tweet is going to come from Andrew Stetka, who, of course, tweets at a Stetka. And uh, to pass an important moment, uh, he, he tweeted the following. Going home and watching hashtag diehard today. Hashtag RIP Alan Rickman. Well, yeah. It's been a pretty terrible week, all things considering. Um, but Alan Rickman, of course, from um, Harry Potter fame is, I guess, the best way I can think of him from most recent years. Uh, uh, Alan Rickman, excellent character actor. Tip of the cap. Yep. Next week goes to, we hope the Marlins fans are equally 
Chentertain. This comes from our good friend JT Guads. You can follow him at Guadzilla and says at B Morons. So goes the best nickname on the team, the hashtag Chentertainer. Jake, we and Chen signs with the the Marlins for a five year, eighty million dollar deal. Uh, certainly not a deal that the Orioles are going to be quickly to go and try to match. Um, best well, that's just because it had an opt-out. That's true. After two years, he's got an opt-out clause after two for 20. I'm not sure if you saw the uh, Dan Zabrowski tweet, but he put the zips out there. And during the first year, it said Marlins. And then the next four years, basically said team that tr- trades with the Marlins because he's, you know, <laughs> the Marlins don't want to pay him any money. And uh, I thought that, that doesn't was, sound like the Marlins at all. No, no. I thought that was, that was fairly, fairly clever on Mr. Zimbrowski's standpoint. Um, you know, this got some attention on the Twitter. Um, it's never going to happen, but we wanted to reach out and say thanks out for the love. So uh, simply AJ10 or Adam Jones put out there, thinking of getting on a podcast, any good ones out there, I got a lot to say. Some good, some bad but mostly hilarious. And look, there were some of you that were so, you know, flawed in your opinion and logic that you put our name out there and said, Hey, you should go talk to these guys. Never, ever, ever do that. You should never make someone that is going to want to have a professional conversation, such as Adam Jones, talk to us. Who is the masters of lack and insight and basis opinion. We are here to amuse you. Not so much amuse the players of the Baltimore Orioles. We would never sully their reputations with this podcast. That and uh, baseballs, and more importantly, the Orioles' uh, policy strictly prohibits it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, look, I have an, an, a grievance I would like to air on this here Twitter machine, Scott. Um, and this is a tweet from the 8th of January. You and I were at Disney World, and some uh, serious news broke. Mm. That serious news was that the Orioles had signed a player whose last name is Turtislavich. And uh, I beg your pardon, what did you say again? Uh, Turtislavich. Turtislavich? Okay, go ahead. So there were apparently jokes to be had on the internet, and I was not aware that that could happen. Uh, I chimed in with a, a tweet that asked if it was too late to um, make a joke about polishing a Turtislavich, and this is where things get, get wrong. Look, um, Aaron Chauncey, who tweets at Aaron21222, tweeted back, turds the word. And frankly, sir, I do not appreciate you being funnier than me on Twitter. But my, it's my, it's not hard. No, my hat is off to you. Uh, a a well turned pun, sir. Final tweet of the week goes into that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And this comes from Dan Zembrowski, who I mentioned earlier. You can follow him at D Zembrowski, uh, and the tweet goes as follows. 130 million. Do I hear 130? O's call 130. Do I hear 140? O's again. 150. 150 for Davis. O's. 160. Wait, do you guys know how this this thing works? Uh, excellent job, Dan. Excellent, excellent work here. Um, of course, this is... Is, rough, is he implying that maybe they bid against themselves? I'm pretty sure that's what he's implying. Yeah. it would It would hurt so much less if it weren't true. It would, um, but you know what? Let's let's get out of the Twitterverse and let's get into actually discussing a move during this offseason. Uh, I think it's an important time to go into the Chris Davis watch.
Well, it finally happened. Chris Davis and the Orioles have reached an agreement. Crush is coming back to Baltimore, everybody. This is no uh, news-breaking situation. Folks, you've known this for several days now, but you know I think it's important for us to kind of come back, circle the wagons, and figure out where do we stand for this. So Chris Davis and the Orioles have agreed to a seven-year, $161 million deal. Um, I guess the question that all Baltimore fans were asking when they woke up on Saturday morning after seeing this was, what does it all mean? Well, at least for me, it means that Peter Angelos got what he wanted. All along, we've been saying that Angelos never lost a negotiation that he cared about. Well, he got the player, although, like Dan Zabersky mentioned, doesn't look like anybody else is really going to pay him that kind of money. The question that everyone wanted to know then and now is, did the Orioles win? And he, we here at Bird's Eye View love to pick out and say whether someone won or lost. And the easiest way that we can go about doing that is in the middle school manner of pros and cons. So, Jake, you want to start breaking this down in pros and cons? Absolutely. Let, let's take the first pro, shall we? Okay. And that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to uh, bleach my hair because we are going to record a video for the dong song. Look, Chris Davis hits all of the dongs. He is the premier power bat on the market, which is why the Orioles were able to bid against themselves to the tune of $161 million. And for whatever else you can say about this contract, at least in the short term, Chris Davis is going to hit a lot of home runs. He's going to drive in a lot of runs. He's going to be a productive member of that lineup there in the middle, which is something the Orioles need. We'll talk a little bit about some cons later, but it's important to note that the Orioles got a player that though nobody else made a a uh, offer to him he is a he's a player that people want on their team so uh, my first pro there is the dong song yeah, i think the other thing that we've got to come back to and it was a comment that was commonly made during last off season when nick marcakis left and nelson cruz left was continuity within the clubhouse and you know i think you know going into last spring training there was a lot of people talking about you know you know, a lot of people left and, you know, this is a different team, but it's really important to focus on keeping some bit of clubhouse continuity, especially after how much changed last off season, bringing in Chris Davis and keeping him in there, perhaps keep certain people happy, such as Adam Jones and, you know, Jonathan Scope and Manny Machado or any of the other veterans that are on that team. Certainly certain players came out immediately afterwards. Zach Britton got right on the Twitterverse and basically posted he was great. He was very happy to see Chris Davis coming back. And it comes back to the fact of Chris Davis is a very likable guy. Um, you know, not to kind of spin off into a totally separate topic, but the one thing that always struck me this offseason is no matter who I went up to and talked to, they would always just say, what's going to happen with Davis? What's going to happen with Davis? What's going to happen with Davis? And no one really cared any much about, you know, what was going to happen with Chen or even what was going to happen with O'Day before he signed. It was always, what's going to happen with Davis? Davis was what the common fan wanted to talk about. It's that common fan that is going to get them to, A, buy tickets to the games, B, buy, buy merchandise, and C, continue to put money into the Orioles' pockets and get interest in them to basically flip on the game. I'm not saying that another player couldn't have done that, that the Orioles would have signed, but clearly Chris Davis is a player and Chris Davis' personality seems to resonate with the Baltimore faithful. Sure. And it's marketable, right? It's marketable here in Baltimore in a way that uh, it's probably magnified than it would have been in any other baseball city in America. You know, the, the Orioles have a player who is 
you know, G shucks. He's a very marketable guy. He's, you know, not hard on the eyes. He's, he's all the things minus the uh, 25 game suspension that you would want in a ball player. And he's a guy that the Orioles fans have already connected to. And for all the reasons you've already said, uh, you know, at some level, it's good for the Orioles to bring this player back uh, because of the business that it can bring. Yeah, I think we got to be careful here, though. And this is one of my next points. And it, it's starting to move into the, the con fashion to a certain regard. <laughs> and, you know, in all honesty, superstars are great and good, but they don't make a team in terms of attendance and bringing players back. For example, I'm going to come back into... Jake, I, you hate when I mention this year, but I'm going to come back to 2005 and look at the superstars that the Orioles, when I got, you know, they had, you know, players like Rafael Palmero and Sammy Sosa in that, in that era. And, you know, you had several superstars there that could have easily gotten the fan base's attention back because they were recognizable names. But in the end, the superstar effect, as it were, from an attendance standpoint and from a revenue standpoint, has been oftentimes been discredited as being a good uh, marketing piece. In fact, the best way to get fans to come to stadiums and maintain in the stadiums is very simple. You just have to win baseball games. And if you win baseball games, surprisingly, attendance tends to uh, increase and stay very high as well. So, uh, you know, it's a win for some fans and the common fans to just have that baseball conversation. But in the end, the big question is going to be, what is it going to do to the product on the field? And that's where I think we need to start working into the cons. Sure. Well, one last piece on that, and then I'll let you roll, because sure. you're right. You're 100% right. The one thing that I would say, however, the difference between 2005 and this year is that 2005 was preceded by seven years of losing, uh, whereas this particular year has seen a bunch of good years and, and a, a down year uh, at 81 and 81 in 2015. Uh, again, with some fans, and you're right to say that it is only some fans, a move like bringing in Chris Davis is, uh, you know, that sign that that a certain subset of the fan base has wanted, you know, Angelo spend money, invest in the team, at least make it look like you're trying that kind of stuff. So uh, whereas I, I think your argument is very sound there, there are that there are those voices out there. So if we're going to move more into the product that's on the field, I think the big thing that we have to look at it, that's negative again is the seven year deal. Look, we've talked about this on the podcast for multiple months as soon as the season ended. And long-term deals for first basemen generally do not hold up very well. Um, Jim Tomei is one that actually is uh, is a great example of one that worked out great. But then you go right back and you look at Ryan Howard. And, you know, Ryan Howard has been absolutely horrible in, in his age 30s. Um, some people will point out saying, well, Chris Davis and Ryan Howard are even close to being the same. Chris Davis is much more athletic. But by that same point, people that easily want to come back and point at Jim Tomei and say, well, Chris Davis is much more like Jim Tomei. Um, Jim Tomei has a much better plate discipline at the plate. His walk rate was much higher. His K rate was much lower. Um, you know, to say that they're big white farm boys, basically, and they're exactly going to be exactly the same is kind of not doing it justice. And, but that being also said, you know, Chris Davis is a unique player. And a lot of times when we're looking at these player comparisons, it's very difficult to find a player that's exactly like Chris Davis. However, I think a seven-year deal is probably going to be um, a negative when we're looking at this back into the deal in terms of either year six or seven of giving us little to no value um, when you're paying him a pretty significant amount of money. 
And, you know, you bring up the first baseman contract, and I, I think it's perfectly viable. Don't get me wrong. But I'd like to extend it a little further out than that. What seven-year deals in baseball have worked out for the club? Not not a lot. Um, and, yeah, and I don't know why they keep getting signed if that's the case. I mean, it, it would seem that at this point we have empirical evidence that if you sign a player for a long-term deal because he was very productive in his mid to late 20s, you're basically guaranteed to not get that back over the life of the, the contract. You are paying a premium. And when I say you're paying a premium, you're paying a backloaded contract into the future where, you know, um, the escalation of inflation involved and you're paying for what a player has already done it, with a deal like this. And, you know, we've seen, you know, the big markets pay this out for guys like, you know, to and Rodriguez and all, it goes on and on. Pool holes is another example. how, how confident can you really be that this player, Davis will be, what, 36, 37 at the end of this deal, is going to be at all productive to the point where it warrants this this contract? It's a very dangerous thing. I mean, yeah, yeah I totally agree with you that long-term contracts are always somewhat dangerous. Um, I, I think, you know, this comes back to the teams that often succeed are the teams that can also uh, hemorrhage that kind of risk versus bringing up farm talent and basically being able to say, you know, that person may not be worth this this large contract in its entire value, but we're going to make it up with a equally lucrative farm system and basically balance out a superstar with, you know, middling talent that is coming up from our farm system that can give us high value versus uh, how much we're paying them. I mean, there are certain contracts out there that I would say were, were decent contracts. Miguel Cabrera was one that I would think of right off the top of my head, who signed an eight-year, $152 million contract that ends this year. Uh, other contracts that I think are, you know, some steals would be uh, Evan Longoria, of course, I think is one of the best contracts ever. Um, sure. Nine years and $44 million is just pretty much a ridiculous contract looking back at it. Um, but even like Andrew McCutcheon, six years, 51.5, or even if we go back to Adam Jones, um, you know, these are all contracts that are long-term contracts that have been beneficial to the clubs is the best way to describe it. But you're absolutely right. You know, long-term contracts overall as a whole are pretty much flawed and risky. And But it's kind of the aspect of if you want a superstar in free agency, that's the kind of money that you normally have to throw out there. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me go into another con, if I might. And that is that this, this deal ties up money, and it ties it up for a long time. Look, um, Dan Duquette was very clear about it at FanFest. He said that this money that we've, we've – uh, set aside for Davis is set aside is only to be spent for Davis. But I'll tell you what, I'll bet you in future years, we're going to be told, Oh no, we can't go get that player because look at how much money we're paying in contracts, including this mega Chris Davis deal. Look, we already spent $161 million on Davis. And so, uh, Scott, is it a, is it a con for the Orioles to have so much money tied up in this one player? Um, well, this comes back to one of the topics that we had on the podcast, which was the Tomei conundrum. And it comes back to, if you spend over 15% of your payroll on one player, it oftentimes has very negative contributions to it. Uh, that being said, you know, it is an interesting scenario here of, you know, how much money is being tied up. There's certainly going to be a lot of money coming off the books as of next year. So you're going to be losing Matt Weeders. You're going to lose Mark Trumbo. That's an easy $25 million that you're getting back into your payroll as of next year. So the question is, is $20 million, which is probably the break-even aspect of how much he's going to be paid after you look at net positive values, 
is $20 million really a make or break for a team such as the Baltimore Orioles? My aspect is it's probably not a make or break, um, but it certainly means that you can't continue to go out and get additional superstar upon additional superstar. You probably can only get two more superstars that are in that similar price range before you're like, yeah, we can't go out and get any more. We've got to do everything else through our farm system or through you know, low or mid-tier players. So uh, the one question I have, and it's a question that everyone's raised, is if that money is tied up in Chris Davis, is that money going to be available for a player like Manny Machado or Adam Jones when they hit free agency come the 2000, after the 2018 season? Well, before we run on to what this means for the remainder of the offseason and, and uh, a little bit further, let me ask you a little bit about the deal itself. The deal is structured very specifically so that um, for the life of it, um, a ton of money is deferred, right? So for the life of it, he's going to be paid $17 million. Um, and then he's basically going to be paying, uh, he's going to be paid until our kids are what, in college? Like it, it's uh, he, it's a lot of deferred money. He gets paid till the age of 51 is is the way that the contract works out. Um, so yeah, he gets paid over a significant period of time. The the one thing that you got to have to look at and people keep coming back and saying, Oh, you, you know, there's $42 million of deferred money in this contract. But if you have to break out the, the values and the interest and stuff like that, it really comes out to be somewhere in the ballpark, like 142 to $144 million of a mm-hmm. total value at this point of day. So, I mean, I still come back to if he's getting paid seven years, that still means that he's getting paid twenty million per year. So this whole conversation of people saying, Oh, we're only paying him seventeen and a half million dollars uh per year and then everything else is deferred, so that doesn't really count. Um let's just hypothetically let's just say it's twenty million dollars a year. So the question that I would raise is, you know, is twenty million dollars worth it for Chris Davis? Look, I love this deal because it's shades of Bobby Bonilla. And it is. It is $17 million from 2016 to 2022. From 2023 until 2032, it's $3.5 million a year. And from 2033 to 2037, it's $1.4 million a year. And basically what that means is this. My daughter is in the third grade. And at the end of this contract, the last $1.4 million payment that the Orioles make to him, she'll be 30. How does that make you feel? She'll probably be married and have kids at that point. Yeah, well, they'll they'll either be telling uh, uh, their kids about uh, you know how this was the greatest deal ever, or they'll still be mocking it. Yeah. Well, I guess the big question is, what does this remain mean for the remainder of the offseason? Look, the Orioles have plenty of gaps remaining. Yoenis um, Suspedes was offered theoretically five year, ninety million dollar deal by the Baltimore Orioles. Um, is he completely off the table now that Chris Davis has signed? If you're asking me, I say yes. I, I, I completely I agree with you about this. I think Jonas Suspedes is completely off the table. I know some people have said, you know, Suspedes can still be signed. Maybe the Orioles could go off and make a, like a two-year deal with him. But I just don't see Jonas Suspedes signing for anything less than, in, than a three- or four-year deal at this time. And I just don't see the Orioles willing to put that money into him um, at this time. Yeah, this was never the Taco Bell girl, uh, you know, Porque No Los Dos. This was uh, making an offer to Yanis Cespedes, basically to try one last time to get Chris Davis's attention. Um, 
but it can't be both. And and if Suspetis is going to sign a short-term deal to reset his value, I think that he's going to go to a place that he already knows he's already comfortable and not make a, a new leap into Baltimore. I, I think that that's, that's a pipe dream. I, I think it's less than 10% that that could ever happen. I mean, stranger things have been known to happen. But Nelson I, Cruz. Yeah, I just don't see it happening with Jonas Suspetis. I don't understand why fans think it is likely for him to say, I'm willing to go even go do a one-year deal and have a qualifying offer attached to my name as of next offseason, whereas this offseason he's got no qualifying offer attached to his name. This is the perfect opportunity for Jonas Suspetis to strike right now and get his long-term deal, and it's not to wait another year and justify his numbers further. He had his justifying numbers last season. Sure. So if it's not Suspetis, you and I agree that Suspetis is not happening. Is there any other outfielder or outfielders that the Orioles could pursue for that right field position? There are there are, there are a few. Um, I certainly don't think there's going to be any big moves. Um, I don't think a Justin Upton is going to be coming here, just like a Jonas Suspetis is going to come here. But I think you know there could be a small move. Austin Jackson's name has come up um, with some fans. Uh, the other name that I've been throwing out and Dylan Atkinson of Orioles on center is thrown out would be Matt Joyce, who I think would be an excellent, uh, platoon outfielder to shore up, um, the Orioles at this time. But again, you're getting into that role like you just did in 2015 where you're playing platoon outfielders and, uh, that didn't really work out so well in 2015. So the question is, why should it be any different this year? Absolutely. So we have Kim in left field, and I think that was a great move. I think it was a, a great signing. I, I really like that the Orioles did that. However, there is risk associated with that. There's risk associated with the fact that his skills will not translate over from uh, from Asia to the MLB. And um, we saw what hoping and praying did in the 2015 season, and it wasn't good. And if you look at it right now, the way the Orioles are projected, it's most likely going to be a platoon of a guy like the Rule 5 draft, Joey Ricard, and Nolan Reimold, so long as he doesn't explode, playing right field uh, with Adam Jones and uh, Hansu Kim. Kim, I'm not sure that I feel great about that, but at the same time, when you go and look in in the free agent market for outfielders, you need to find somebody who's going to be a better option than those two. Um, and if you are not really enticed by, by somebody being a better option than a healthy Nolan Reimold, you know, do you sink money into that when you have other needs? Right. Um, the other aspect is starting pitching, of course, is a need. I like to maybe save this for a little bit later in the podcast when we go through a little bit about you know options in terms of starting pitching. And I really kind of want to move more in the direction of where does this leave us as a franchise uh, going forward? Um and Manny Machado, again, is a topic that I think that needs to be covered on this podcast and by other folks about how does this impact Manny Machado um, or does it in, not impact him whatsoever? I'd kind of like the organization to address it if, if they could. Well, I, I understand that. But I mean, just as a fan looking at the financials, um, you know, I think plenty of fans will say, you know, Angels has got plenty of money. He's already demonstrated now by, you know, going out and signing Davis for $160 million. But if the Orioles are going to pay Chris Davis $160 million, if I'm Manny Machado and I'm look, I'm his agent, I'm looking at that, I'm like, well, if Chris Davis is getting that much for the Orioles and they have that much in Bush invested in, then my client has to be worth at least $300 million um, based off of how much better he is than Chris Davis. Sure. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's it's frightening to think what a contract like this does to to Manny Machado's value. But I would also go as far as to say that I'm not sure it's Chris Davis specifically that affects Manny Machado's value. I, I think it's just the way the market is going for uh, talent. And when Manny Machado hits free agency, it's it's going to be ridiculous. I mean, you know, when those guys, and when I say those guys, I mean the Trouts, the Harpers, the Machados of this league – get out there into the free agent market. It's not going to be pretty for the team that, that tries to hold on to them. The only silver lining I can find, and it's feeble. It is a, it is a absolutely feeble attempt, but the only silver lining I can find are the comments that Zach Britton made um, in that interview with Masson, uh, which was to say that the signing of Davis, um, much like you said, uh, in, in exact uh, opposite of the Marqueca situation, says to the Orioles players that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're gone when they reach free agency. I, I think that if the Orioles are going to get something done with Machado, it needs to be before he hits free agency, because if he, if he's allowed to test the market, he gone. And, and to put another positive spin on this, I want to come back to fan fest where Brady Anderson was quoted as saying, you know, he thought it was a kind of a poor decision made by the Orioles to let certain free agents get to the marketplace. Um, there was certainly an, a push being made by Brady at that point of putting emphasis on, talking to players and getting them signed to long-term contracts before they reach free agency to save some money before these players get into free agency. Um, you know, it would have been very interesting instead of for Chris Davis to come back and had a conversation um, at the end of 2014 and said, okay, can we work out a deal? Now maybe the Orioles were trying to do that, but you know, a lot of money could have been saved if the Orioles had signed him after the 2014 season, as opposed to waiting until he got to free agency. Boris is always an issue there as well. But Manny Machado is one of those players where you would think that the Orioles have to say, okay, the next big contract we're going to give out is to Manny Machado. Let's start working on the structuring of that contract and figuring out what needs to be done in order to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about Machado is that he will never be cheaper than he is today. And if the Orioles go out and make just an absurd offer, right, just a crazy, absurd, ton of money, ridiculous offer, it'll probably actually look pretty sane by the time you compare it to what numbers get floated out there and what it actually takes to sign him once he hits the market yeah i'm thinking it's gonna have to be someone in the long lines of like a gino carlos stanton contract at this point now if you're looking at davis and he's getting 160 million dollars i think you've almost got to come back to that 13 year 325 million dollar contract that stanton signed and said manny we basically want to offer you the same thing and are you willing to take it or not and I don't know how he would answer it, but it would certainly be an, an interesting conversation. And again, if he doesn't sign it, uh, it still puts that aspect of, well, at least the ownership was willing to put $300 million associated to Manny Machado's name for a long-term deal to keep him in Oriole for the rest of his career. Um, now, I don't want to get too far down the line as far as whether or not Manny Machado signs an extension with the Orioles, particularly because... If we're going to enjoy the Chris Davis one, we should we should enjoy you know when it does happen. But let me just say this: for all the many reasons I will be disappointed if Manny Machado ever parts from this club, a, a top five contender is his salsa. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, but I know you can't wait to see Manny Machado and Bryce Harper both on the same team wearing some pinstripes. 
You wound me, sir. Yeah. All right. So we've talked through Manny Machado. I'd actually like to know what the direction of the franchise is going to be. We have a, a first baseman slash DH for the next seven years. Yeah. So let me ask you this. What does this mean for the future of Christian Walker and Trey Mancini in the Baltimore Orioles organization? I don't think it affects Christian Walker whatsoever because I don't think he's a very good player, number one. Um, Shh, don't say that. Yeah. Don't I, let anybody else know. Yeah, he's undersized. He's only six foot tall. Yeah, he hit for pop back in 2014, but in 2015, again, he had a uh, you know, a relapse is the best way to describe it, but I think he came to earth to a certain aspect. Trey Mancini is an interesting talent. He's probably one of our better hitters in all the minor leagues. I'd put him slightly below Chancisco, and I'm sure someone's out there going to disagree with me. But Trey Mancini, I think, and Christian Walker need to be dangled at this point. Um, I know there are some people that said, we can't trade trade Mancini. He's one of our best bats. We need to see if he can play outfield. But trade Mancini has already been looked at in terms of corner positions in the infield. He just doesn't have the agility at the athletics or the arm to be an outfielder. Trey Mancini and Christian Walker are first baseman DHs, and this team is set for first baseman DHs. The Orioles need to go ahead and look at moving them for pitching and or um a shortstop um, to potentially replace J.J. Hardy or corner outfielders um, to fill the gaping wound and void, which is the Orioles farm system in terms of outfielders. Um, as much as I'd like to see what they grow up into, this is the perfect opportunity to start trading them and getting some pieces back that may benefit your team. I'd keep Christian Walker as a Norfolk fill-in, but I would definitely trade Mancini. He's at his top value right now. He's probably not going to get any better. Yeah, and I am uh, I'm I'm inclined to believe you. I mean, I w- I would love to see homegrown talent play for the Orioles for a long time, but at the same time, I, I also want to see the Orioles win. And uh, you know, if if trading away a young guy like Mancini is the way to fill some of those holes that you're talking about, I, I say go for it. Um, all right, go ahead. Last last thing I, I wanted to talk about as far as the direction of the franchise, everyone has basically said it as soon as the the announcement came out. Um, does a deal like Davis and maybe the deal of Davis in the larger discussion of where player uh, contracts and salaries are right now, does that affect ticket prices for the Orioles? Yes. Um, I think the, I think the contracts and everything are going to blossom payroll up into, I think it's going to be right around like $150 million once this, this season's done. So you've gone from having a, a payroll right around 120 to $150 million and certainly there is a little bit of money that was free up from the past few years, but it wasn't $30 million. Um, I think I think revenue is going to need to be increased, and the best way to do that is to increase in ticket prices. Look, the Orioles were in the bottom 10 for ticket prices last year. I would think that a modest increase of 10 to 15% would be able to you know help out a little bit. But, I mean... The other thing too is, you know, you're talking ten to fifteen percent. You're only going to get an extra like five million dollars in revenue to make up for it. So it's not going to make the team, and it's not going to be a significant improvement for the team. But I think the Orioles need to start moving in that direction to get them to be within the median of um, what baseball ticket prices are, and not in the bottom percentile at this time. 
I think it'll be interesting to watch because uh, of all the things that can be said about Peter Angelos, and there are many, the Angelos ownership group has made it clear that they would like to keep ticket prices affordable for families to be able to go to see baseball games. And they often compare themselves when everything else is terrible, including the product on the field. They often compare themselves to other markets and say that Oriole games are, are affordable for families. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long that'll hold because uh, I, I just can't imagine how if the team is finally going to start raising its payroll, it, it can continue to have the niceties of lower ticket prices. So I, I agree with you. The The thing is that if they are going to in, increase them by 10 to 15%, at least they're starting from a lower point. Right, exactly. And again, I'm going to come back and point out the Nationals ticket prices, which are right around averaging $35 per ticket. The Orioles are right around $25. Again, it's a 40% difference in ticket prices over just you know a 30 to 40 mile radius yes there is a corporate aspect to that um where you're you know you're basically having corporations buy a lot more tickets through the nationals than are in the baltimore area but still i i think orioles fans can afford to spend an extra few dollars at the ballpark at this time if they're going to put out a you know a higher priced payroll um year in and year out all right, Scotty, let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot. Chris Davis signs for $161 million. Okay. Do you like the deal? Or are you glad it happened? All right, Jake. So this is where I'm going to say something, and you're going to cut my mic off if I get a little too offensive. All right. So, so this is how I ascribe and basically see the situation. So the signing of the contract with the Orioles and Davis, I see almost as like the George W. Bush on you know the ship with the mission accomplished thing and i can see you know good things happening for the first few years i'd say the first three years and then after that it's a complete boondoggle basically of a contract for the last four years everything is terrible uh you know it's just an albatross hanging around your neck it's it's going to be horrible so it's kind of a yeah we won now but we know misery and woe is going to be coming after the first three years so you're saying that the Chris Davis money is going to disappear into the sand? Uh, I'm saying, yes, the Chris Davis money is going to disappear into the sand. We have wandered into Baltimoreans territory, everybody. <laughs> um, I, I, I really wanted Chris Davis back, right? As the emotional fan that I am, as the guy that, that watched Davis uh, play here in Baltimore, as a guy who watched Dingers sail into the seats, yes, I wanted Chris Davis back. I'm a little horrified at the amount of money that it took to get him here. Um, So I will say that the Orioles had better make that huge investment worth it because I agree with you. I think that the end of this contract is going to be painful, Um, but I I think that not getting him uh, and, and probably not getting anybody to replace him as would have happened uh, would have been worse in my opinion than, than not having tried. And, And maybe that is the experience of having watched 15 years of losing, but I'd really like to see the Orioles make a go of it. And if they're going to use this window where they've got a productive Jones and a Manny Machado and now a Chris Davis who isn't decrepit and and in the back end of his years, if they're going to have this, please do what you need to fill the rest of the team that can contend and win because we're going to have to go through some, some other periods at the end of this Davis contract. That sounds like a perfect segue to go and break out what else the Orioles could need in this brief time period of, you know, going for it all. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and diagnose what the Orioles need to do 
for the rest of free agency. While laying in the bed last night, I had a dream that touched me deep inside. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I want to tell the whole world about it. I dreamed that she was gone. And I'm sad about it. So Jake, there's Scott, been... I can... go ahead. <laughs> Scott, I could try to be eloquent, but it's been said so much already. The Orioles need starting pitching. The Orioles need starting pitching. And I'd like to, to just dive into the folks that do this for a living. And I'd like to read you a little something from Ken Rosenthal's piece on this very subject from FoxSports.com dated the 16th of January. It says, in part, a starter, a starting pitcher should be next. A starting pitcher has to be next. A rotation led by the front four of Chris Tillman, Evaldo Jimenez, Miguel Gonzalez, and Kevin Gosman simply is not good enough. That's exactly right. I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this program. Our, our four top pitchers are not good enough to get it done, especially not without Wei-Yin Chen. The difference between the 2014 and 2015 Orioles was that the pitching was good enough in 2014, and almost exactly that same staff was not good enough in 2015. If we're to hope to compete, I would rather not hope that that same group is going to regain the form that they showed for one year. Yeah, I mean... so. Yeah, I mean that that I think that's what everyone's hoping for is everyone says, okay, hopefully they were better than they were last year. And not to mention, if this team doesn't have Bud Norris on it, who was absolutely abysmal last year, uh, they've got to be better. But it's that kind of you know positive, optimistic attitude that was prevalent at the end of 2014 and going into 2015, saying, well, this is a team that got to the ALCS and we're that close to getting to the World Series, so we really don't think we're going to need to do that much differently, especially since we're going to have a healthy Manny Machado and a healthy Chris Davis. So let's not rock the boat too much uh, in terms of making dynamic improvements. And, you know, unfortunately that notion is a fallacy is the best way to describe it because for as much as a player may improve, such as a Chris Tillman or a Miguel Gonzalez or Kevin Gossman, there's also the likelihood that they're going to see other players decrease in effectiveness whether it be Abaldo Jimenez not having quite the season that he was or uh, someone in the bullpen not being so good like Brad Brock or maybe Zach Burton doesn't have such a good time in the bullpen as well or even if we go to positional players maybe Manny Machado does not have you know uh, an MVP like season which it was like last season maybe it's just an all-star season which is great but you're still losing some of the contribution of having a really really good season um, so I guess in my opinion, if going back to starting pitching, there are three approaches that you can kind of take to improve yourself. And it's, you know, this, is what we can afford with what's left over. And again, there's not a lot left over because you're in January and pretty much all the good starting pitchers haven't been picked up at this point. Um, you basically go with, well, we'll go with whoever's best in an organization coming out of spring training and hope to God it's not Brian Mattis. Or number three, you shut your mouth. Yep. Or you, number three, just go with, um, well, we'll just try to be good enough and grit it out, and we'll see what happens. And 
I, I guess the question is, Jake, which way should the Orioles go? Um, I, I know how I feel, but what do you think? Well, exactly like we just talked about in the end of the last segment, I think that now is the time for the Orioles to invest in starting pitching. The real problem that you have is looking at the free agent market and with the arms that are left, does it make sense to buy? You know, there are some names in the market that I would argue are not much better than what we have in the organization and will cost a lot of money and in some cases cost a draft pick. And that's certainly not the business that you want to be in. On the other hand, I'm not sure that well, I am sure it's not good enough to stand pat. So the question really comes down to looking at the arms that are out there. What makes sense to to go ahead and improve the team with and go ahead and spend that money? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you about that. Um, I, I guess my question is, I understand you don't want to go and drop additional money if it doesn't really make a big difference. But you've got to look at the options that you have out there right now. You've got Mike Wright and Tyler Wilson. And we saw what happened last year when we went with Mike Wright and Tyler Wilson. Yeah, they were okay for a start here or there. But over an entire season, they just don't have the necessary repertoire of pitches in order to be a, a, a decent uh, member within the American League East. That's not to say that they don't have a role. They could easily be a spot start here or there. Someone gets injured. You know, you're always needing more than just five starting pitch errors. But if you really want to win the American League East, you're going to have to put that money down on players that may not be as good as uh, your current players that are in the farm system, but also have a higher um, ceiling in terms of being good. And the, the two pitchers that I think everyone will quickly point to is Doug Fister and Matt Latos, who in the past have shown that they can be uh, not an ace, but at least a number two or number three and could definitely be similar in performance to a Chris Tillman or a Baldo Jimenez in terms of performance, which may be just enough for this team in order to make them a contender in terms of being a wild card team. So Scott, I was surprised to hear you mention Doug Fister there. Um, and so I'd like to talk if we could about that particular guy, because you look at, at Doug Fister and he's not a guy that's amassed a lot of innings in the past couple of years. He's had the injury bug. I, I know that that some of his durability issues come from those injuries. Uh, but you look and you wonder, even though he's not an old guy, he's on the veteran side of things, plus the wear and tear on the arm. Is Doug Fister the kind of arm that you can spend money on and realistically hope is going to be better than the you know the uh, rest of the guys in your organization? Basically, the 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 war guys, the above average replacement. I mean, I mean, I I think you've got to be concerned about Doug Fister to a certain regard of, you know, that velocity of the fastball is continuing to decrease and decrease every single year. And by that same notion, if you look at the K percentages that he's gone, um, they're incre- increasingly decreasing as well, which, again, is concerning. I mean, strikeouts are going to be your best friend as a pitcher. And the more and more you reduce that, the more and more, you know, you get to be less effective. And in the case of Doug Fister, you know, he is going to be 32 years old next year, which again is not incredibly old, but you know, that loss of velocity is going to have to change him into a different pitcher. The, the one thing I will point out with Fister is you're absolutely right. There is health concerns there. Um, in 2015, only had 103 innings in 2014, only 164 innings. The question that needs to be raised is, you know, if you go out and get a Doug Fister does he really need to give you 190 innings? Does he need to be a workhorse for you? Or are you okay with him 
um, being that fifth starter that can put up really good numbers and then basically have Buck use him in a role that, you know, is basically preserving him uh, with Tyler Wilson and Mike Wright making the occasional spot start. If there's anybody that's really good with roster management and keeping people healthy, it's the Orioles. And I think the Orioles could easily do that. Um, I think they could also shift schedules around and say, oh, we're going to skip you this turn because, you know, you're going against, um, you know, the Blue Jays and you always do terrible against the Blue Jays. I think Doug Fister would be an excellent option. I'm not sure if I'm willing to go for the two for $22 million that's out there, but I would love to get him on a one-year deal for, you know, 8 to $12 million. Sure. Keep in mind that he made a... $11.4 million last year. Right, exactly. So uh, I, I hear I hear all that. I'm just not sure for the amount of money that will have to be shelled out for him if you're really getting that return on investment. I, but again, I, I realize that I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I'm the guy that just said, go do something. Right. All right you also talked about Matt Latos. Uh, talk me into him. Why, why should the Orioles be worried about this guy? Matt Latos should be somewhat of a worry because he's got some head issues is the best way to describe it. Um, had a really negative experience with the Cincinnati Reds, called out the organization, um, popped around with multiple teams from the Marlins to the Dodgers. Um, I think he ended up with the Indians for a brief cup of coffee at the end of the year. But some of his peripheral numbers are just, you know, really great. I mean, his ERA last year was god-awful. It was 4.95. But if you look at his FIP and his XFIP, FIP was 3.72. XFIP was 3.69. K per nine was 7.74. Walks per nine was 2.48. Just to, Jake, to put that in perspective, uh, Wei and Chen last year was a 7.20 K per nine. Walks were 1.93. Uh, Matt Lotos actually had a better FIP and uh, XFIP than um, Wei and Chen. So, you know, if you're looking at peripheral numbers, Matt Lotos could easily be um, a Wei and Chen replacement on this team. Um I think Matt Latos is the person I would go out and put my money in if I had a choice between Doug Fister and Matt Latos. Yeah, and last year he made $9.5 million. Uh, do you think it's going to take a large multi-year contract in order to land him, or do you think that he's the type of guy that would want to reestablish value after all those issues that you just described? I think he's a player that's going to want to establish value. He's only 28 years old. Uh, I think he would want a one-year deal right around 12 to $15 million in order to reestablish value. And, and the other thing comes back to is if he establishes value in that one year, you can always offer him a qualifying offer at the end of the offseason and get a draft pick back in, in compensation. This seems like a win-win deal for, for me, at least. Um, I don't understand why you wouldn't make that deal um, and say, you're either going to float and we're going to get the value out of you and also get a draft pick, or it's not going to work out, but you know, at least we gave it a shot. If it were me, I'd be looking and calling up Matt Latos' agent right now and working out a deal to make this happen. All right, let's let's talk about a guy that's gotten a lot of attention from Orioles fans, or at least the media regard, in regards to the Orioles, and that's Giovanni Gallardo. Uh, this is a player I do not want the Orioles to pursue, and I, I think you're there with me, right? Yeah, I think Gallardo is gone at this point. I think that the only way Gallardo was going to be signed was if Chris Davis did not get signed as well. Um, and the Orioles had to go out and get like a Justin Upin, and then Giovanni Garrado got signed as well. I think the Orioles are going to be very protective of that 14th draft pick right now. I think that's why you know certain players are not there on the board anymore, like uh, Justin Upton. 
I, I, I just don't see Giovanni Gallardo fitting into the picture at this time for the Baltimore Orioles. All right. Well, then, of course, there is old home week. Yeah. Uh, Scott, are you feeling nostalgic? Um, because there are there are a couple names on the market right now that that could be a reunification of of sorts. You know, Jeremy Guthrie is still out there. No, no. You, you know, you know, Alfredo Simone is still out there. No, continue. And and there's just one more, and and this is one that that pulls the heartstrings because it reminds us of of better times. Uh, Randy Wolf is still out there after uh, you know having completed that minor league contract last year. These are just various names that the Orioles could go out there and 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 really bring all the feels home. Uh, no, no, and no. I think I'd rather have Vance Worley as our fifth starter as opposed to any of those three pitchers, and that just tells you how bad all three of those options were. Well, we we've poo pooed Vance the Vanimal um, ever since the Orioles signed him. There is a good chance at this point unless they do something that Vance Worley will be in the starting rotation. Uh, how devastating would that be? Or am I, am I uh, dismissing him too quickly? Mm, I'm not sure if it would be devastating. It'd be disappointing. Um, but I'm not sure if I would say it would be, it would be devastating. I think it would be a question of can Vance Worley go into your rotation for the first few months? And is it possible for you to uh, potentially get like Dylan Bundy or Tyler Wilson into the rotation later on this year? Um, you know, Dylan Bundy, people don't want to come back to him because they're like, well, he's not going to be a starter in the rotation because he can't go through a full season. But, you know, what happens if Dylan Bundy is able to come into the rotation and pitch half of the season and go 90 to 100 innings pitch during as a starter? I think it's somewhat unrealistic. But from a talent standpoint, Dylan Bundy is probably your highest talent pitcher um, that you could basically bring in much more so than a Tyler Wilson or Mike Wright. It's just a question of durability um, and whether you want to risk that. I wouldn't want to risk it, but it's nice having that trump card in the back. Um, Dylan Bundy could certainly be uh, a wild card in terms of making the rotation um, going into 2016. Well, I hope he forces that conversation, but I count me in the camp that thinks he'll be a reliever this year. Yeah. Um, I have one last question for you. I'm, I'm going to phrase it. We mentioned the Ken Rosenthal piece a little bit earlier. I'm going to read you one more quote and then uh, uh, set up a question for you to, to answer me here. Uh, the quote is as follows. The Orioles could have landed eight of the top 100 selections if uh, free agents Davis, Chen, and catcher Matt Wieters all, had all signed with other clubs. But that number will be reduced to five if they sign Gallardo, which we just discussed. The picks are critical to them, though they haven't drafted drafted particularly well or been particularly lucky with the health of their young pitchers in recent years. So having read all that from Ken Rosenthal, Scott, let me ask you this. So having read all of that, Scott, let me ask you this. It, it should go without saying that the Orioles should be massing picks, right? Their farm system is just not that strong, but the Orioles have shown that they're all thumbs when it comes to draft picks, particularly selecting and, and developing young promising pitchers. Is there a point, Scott, where this team should start valuing pitchers that other organizations have selected and developed over the possibilities of their own ineptitude. My, the point I'm getting to is I have just said a few minutes ago that we shouldn't be getting guys like Gallardo because they cost picks. But my question to you is, should that be a concern, at least in the short term, with as poorly as the Orioles perform in the draft? 
you know, it's it's a tough question because you basically throw out there saying, hey, we want to get better pitchers, but we really don't have anything to offer to get these better pitchers that are in other people's development. So I, I want to come back to a topic that we had earlier in the show, which was, you know, you've got players like Trey Mancini, for example, that are at the at the peak of probably, you know, of their value, basically. They've had a breakout season. People are interested in talking about them. And, you know, you're not going to go out and get a player like Alex Wood, who's a player that has been mentioned uh, as being a possible trade uh, piece for the Dodgers at this point. Alex Wood's under control for four more years. If you're going to go out and get an Alex Wood player that has been developed by another team and has massive amount of club control, it's going to take a player that is, you know, basically major league ready and is, you know, in excellent condition, such as like a Zach Britton or a Jonathan Scope. And I don't think anyone in, on this franchise or in the fan base wants to trade that. However, I, I think it is interesting to go back and say, if you've got these prospects and you want to um, do uh, basically restart the whole cycle and start to get new draft picks, it would be interesting to go out and potentially go get something um, in, in a trade uh, regarding some arbitration eligible players. And there's three players that are in their final year of arbitration that are of interest to me as an Orioles fan. One of them actually was a potential trade candidate back in 2014 when the Orioles were going to trade Eduardo Rodriguez for him, um, but that was nixed by the owner at the time. Um, and I'm actually talking about Jorge De La Rosa from the Colorado Rockies, who is the so-called ace of the Rockies. Now, the Rockies, are, of course, in rebuild mode right now, um, but Jorge De La Rosa actually has got some really interesting numbers. Um, he's got right around an eight uh, K per nine, a three and a half walk per nine, um, a very decent ground ball percentage around 52%. Look, you know, I look at Jorge De La Rosa and I see him as kind of like a pseudo Abaldo Jimenez, but you know, he's only available for one year. He's only going to cost you around $12 million this year. But you know, in terms of F war, he's going to give you right around the 2.5 to 2.6 F war. Um, which would be a, a great contribution in replacing Wei Chen, and also for the people out there that are really big about handness, uh, he's also a left-handed pitcher, which would be really interesting as well. Other pitchers to throw out there that would be of interest to me would be an Andrew Kashner, who's with the San Diego Padres, who again is in his last year of arbitration. Uh, again, another pitcher that you know has some great value. Jeremy Hellickson also is another individual that is interesting, who just recently got traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm not sure if the Phillies would be willing to trade him right away. But the fact that Andy McPhail is currently within the Phillies organization, and so has Ned Rice now moved there too, you have to think that they've looked at the Orioles organization, their prospects, and said, there's a few prospects here and there that we would like to get into our organization because we were the ones that kind of helped to find these guys. Um, it would be interesting to see if a move could be made with the Phillies to get like a Jeremy Hellickson who's only got one year left and is not going to be a big piece for the Phillies moving forward in in, in return for a prof and in, in return for a prospect, um, hopefully an outfielder or an infield prospect such as Trey Mancini. Again, none of these players are going to be barn burner aces, but they could easily fit that role of a Matt Latos or Doug Fister um, and potentially be even a little bit better. So. Do I think that the Orioles need to go out and get, you know, really young pitching? I don't think it's possible unless they're going to go out and trade a Jonathan Scope or a Zach Britton. But I do think there's options out there in terms of arbitration eligible pitchers that have one or two years of control left um, that the Orioles need to be considering trading some of their prospects in for at this time. Sure. And, and I agree to the point that we don't need the pitching to be 
phenomenal. I think the Orioles have shown since 2012 that they can consistently win when the pitching is just pretty good. And I think that if they could get the uh, starting rotation to the point where it's pretty good, um, then they'd, they'd be sitting in a much better position than they were last year. Right. And again, let's let's be careful here with that, too, because people will come back and say, well, the Royals obviously did not have a great starting staff. And look, they won the World Series. But the likelihood of that happening every single year is minimal. Um, there is a reason why people say starting pitching is the easiest way to get to the playoffs and win in the playoffs. And, and, and it's true. I mean, there are certain instances where people get knocked out. The Tigers, when the Orioles played them in the playoffs, the Nationals not getting there last year. But you set yourself up in a more favorable fashion when you've got great starting pitching. And unfortunately, with the Orioles, they're not going to have that this year. All they can do is hope to um, basically build on negatives, which are right now Vance Worley, Tyler Wilson, and Mike Wright, and maybe Dylan Bundy if he can be a starting pitcher in 2016. Well, there you have it. The Orioles have made a major signing, and we certainly hope that there will be at least some minor signings along the way. Uh, Scotty, do you have anything this week, or can I blow the save? Jake, why don't you go ahead and blow the save? Uh, Scott mentioned that we are recording remotely today. Uh, Scott's under the weather, and I blew my back out. Um, I'm dumb. I blew my back out today trying to uh, lift a... um, (laughs) <laughs> a treadmill there was another person helping me but uh it was uh it was not a good look for me i uh was bent over on the stairs tried to do all the lifting and uh, i can barely move my back but it had to be like the worst pain i've ever experienced and scott you've seen me do some stupid stuff including you know putting it all through my hand but it was it was just miserable it got me to wondering what is the worst pain you've experienced uh, and I'm not looking for anything gory. I'm just uh, curious as to whether ba- uh, back pain uh, ranks up there. So I would like to hear from Bird's Eye View listeners this week with uh, tweet at us uh, with a hashtag uh, Jake is dumb. And let me know what's the worst thing um, that you felt. Because uh, before the drugs all managed to kick in today, uh, I was pretty sure that I was on death's doorstep. I think mine had to be when the Orioles traded a draft pick to the LA Dodgers <laughs> for three and a half million dollars. I think that's the worst pain I've ever had. I'm not sure your soul's anguish has recovered. No, it hasn't, especially since we just got to finish a, a, a segment there just discussing about how can we get better in the draft and get more draft picks. Yeah, that's how about we just keep our three and a half million dollars next time and uh, and not do that. So um but yeah, that's that was really good but yeah tweet us to tell us what your pain and misery is all about hashtag jake is dumb all right well it was a fun week to kind of get back into the swing of things and actually talk orioles baseball and actually have something to talk about as opposed to disney orioles trivia and all that stuff so thank gosh that 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 happened um jake anything that you want to cover or talk about no, I think uh, outside of Chris Davis and hoping for more pitching, uh, that's it. So uh, without further ado, Baltimore and beyond, I will bid you all a fond adieu-adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. Always lift with the knees. Yeah. You should wear one of those like girdle thingies to you know support your back. I should have had a real man try to carry this. That's true.
you're still here. It's over. Go home. Go. Go.